Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup. This is episode 17 of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guests today are Marion Chapsal and Ken Homer, who together run workshops on how to facilitate collaborative communication on gender diversity and leadership issues. Marion, who is based in Lyon, is Chief Learning Officer at Ideas on Stage, as well as the head of Women on Stage. Ken runs an organization called Collaborative Conversations in San Francisco. In this episode, we discuss how to deal with gender diversity issues and conflicts, the importance of clear communication, how to affect change on a small and large scale, and so much more. So without further ado, here's episode 17 with Marion Chapsal and Ken Homer. Good morning. Today we're here with Ken and Marion. Perhaps uh, the two of you would like to introduce yourselves, introduce your companies, and uh, what your specialities are. Sure. Well, it's nice to be there, Chris. And uh, so I'm Marion, Marion Chapsal. I'm the Chief Learning Officer of Ages on Stage, and uh, I founded Women on Stage, which helps women uh, getting their voice heard with more confidence in the world. And this is also my passion and one of the reasons why I'm here today. Okay, and I'm Ken Homer. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. My company is called Collaborative Conversations. We're a small firm that does a lot of different work with people around how conversation actually gets work accomplished. And so I do executive retreat, leadership development, coaching, um, and uh, organizational development. How do we fix these problems? Whether it's uh, abuse in the workplace, whether it's... Uh, turning against women who, who speak up. It's an enormous problem. Where, where do we even start? The thing is, uh, we, <laughs> I'm, I'm tempting to say uh, we shouldn't stop. The thing is, we have already started. It's been starting for, uh, well, since the uh, emancipation of women for yeah. me in the 60s. It's always been since women have been getting the right to, to vote uh, in the early uh, of, the 19th, of the 20th century. It has started. And now, because this is becoming more conscious and because people are being aware of this, this, this huge awareness with the Me Too movement every day and in every country, new stories, new horrific stories which are being said, this is... Public, so we have this feeling that is, oh, what's happening in the world? This is horrible. My belief is, it has always been like that. People didn't know about it. And the good news is that now we can be aware it's out. It's horrible. It's painful. We want to turn away from it. We don't want to talk about it. It's very hard to have this conversation at home, even. I realize I'm the first one when my daughters and my sons speak about it. It's not so easy. But the good news is that then now that it's here, we are all involved in it. It's not just, okay, these are women's group who are going to tackle these women's organizations or people who are working into gender diversity. No, this is about everybody. 
So you, you can feel my passion when I'm starting <laughs> to think, speak about it. So I once heard someone say, everything is getting better and better and worse and worse, faster and faster. <laughs> and I think there's great truth in that. And so a lot of this depends upon where we put our attention. If we're focused on what's getting worse and worse, we get into kind of a paralysis, you know, like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And we start running around like chickens with our heads cut off. And if we get into everything's getting better and better, we can get ungrounded and thinking it's all going to work out. And, you know, there's never been a better time to be alive. And both of those are true. I think we need to kind of be in that faster and faster part with a little bit of each one of things are speeding up and things are getting better and they're getting worse. And, and how can we be personally effective in coping with that? I've kind of eliminated the word problem from my vocabulary because problems evoke a certain problem-solution binary thinking. And what we're coping with is really messy. It's very complex. There's high social complexity and high systems complexity. And if we come in and we bring a problem mindset to it, we think we can fix things that are unfixable. With messes, you can make things better or you can make them worse, which is not the same as fixing. It's kind of like healing the body. You don't fix a body. You create the conditions for it to heal itself. You set the bones, you give it you know, the proper medication, and the body does the work. So I think if we recognize there's an innate intelligence in both our individual bodies and our collective bodies, and we can start to build resilience and coping skills and competencies that can help us to make these messes a lot more manageable, right, as opposed to trying to fix and problem solve, which puts us into a, a series of, of thought questions that aren't really useful. So tell us a little bit about how the two of you together and separately work on making the conditions for healing. Okay. So my approach has started as an executive coach, leadership coach, and, uh, and facilitator of groups to focus on the women. And so I was naturally drawn to start Women on Stage, which is, uh, which is the way for women to find themselves together sharing uh, what is it about the double bind for women, which maybe we'll develop um, at a, another point. What, why, why is it so difficult to really express your voice when you're a female? And then finding the way to individually and collectively uh, just become stronger and more confident. So I've been starting to do that. I've been developing that now for um, seven years and at Ideas on Stage for four years and it's amazing the transformation that it brings when people come into the training, into the workshop and they say, okay, I came here because I wanted to improve my presentation skills. I wanted to be better to, for my next, my next keynote and they are at the end and they are better but they come also, uh, the takeaway is so much more because they are stronger, they are more competent, and they are more able to, to cope with uh, this difficulty of the voice. So this is one part that I've been developing. And in parallel, uh, since two years, I've been also just facing this gender fatigue of always finding myself in groups of women. I was talking about this subject, but women... I don't need to convince them. They know about it. The people I need to convince are the leaders, are the CEOs. And usually they are not there at this conference about women. Right. 
and I'm when I'm speaking with HR people, they are convinced. Diversity people, they are convinced. And uh, two years ago, I was asked, okay, how do we move the needle? How do we make it faster? I just published, uh, I just uh, shared something on LinkedIn, another of the uh, Financial Times article about, you know, all these depressing numbers of the slowliness and of how it's not moving. It's tough, the numbers of people, of women on boards, the number of uh, women uh, CEOs. And... So it brings this gender fatigue, and how do we break this gender fatigue? I think it's mixing individual approaches of coaching, because I will never stop uh, being really an advocate for women, and I will always be on the side of women. And I want to bring men, and especially men from the younger generation, because I think it's much, they really are less contaminated, they really see it, and they really open big eyes when they see what is happening in, in the companies. And they don't recognize themselves in the culture of the baby boomers or the people who are uh, uh, at the top. And they don't want this for their sisters, and they don't want uh, this for their daughters, young daughters that they are raising into, uh, you know, being raised like their brothers and no gender differences and just, okay, empower your little girl. And then they see in the company that their co-worker is not being paid the same as them. And they see that they, the women they're working with are being interrupted and, and cut short and uh, not promoted. And uh, all this is unfair. And this, when men start to, to see that, then they are the best allies we can find to move it in the grassroots movement, so really from the, from the bottom, and at the same time working with top executive at the top, because with these people, I need to make the business case, and I do. And I really, okay, you need to, to speak profits, you need to speak about uh, markets, next opportunity, this is bigger than China, these are women, these right. are your consumers, right. these are people who are going to influence you. So to answer again your question, it's, um, I realize that I need to spread and to diversify also and to be more innovative in my approaches. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why two years ago, when I was asked by uh, one of our biggest clients to work on a gender diversity program and to bring uh, more women. Well, it was around the Women's Day, you know, International's uh, Women's Rights Day, 8 of uh, March. And uh, they said, okay, Marianne, we'd like to, you to come and uh, conduct some workshop uh, because we have followed women on stage, but it was great. So could you do something? and to bring awareness, gender awareness to our people. But you know, there will be some men too. I say, well, in that case, I don't see why it will be one woman who would be speaking in front of a mixed uh, audience. Let me bring you someone who is going to be uh, co-facilitating with me, and then we can co-create together and co-design and really embody what it is to have this gender balanced leadership because this is absurd of just being focused on women's group and growing. I can grow as much women's group as I want, but uh, until it doesn't 
really start the conversation with men and make the right decision together, it doesn't, it doesn't move. So that's when I, I integrated Ken Homer. I integrated Ken and I brought him uh, to this project and we did amazing stuff together of bringing awareness, of bringing consciousness for people, of making people listen to each other, of uncovering, you know, the things that women, they, they know about, they have been conscious with. Just remember a, a scene in, when we were in uh, Atlanta uh, for this company and uh, there were, at one point, one woman was, um, well, actually, sharing a really difficult situation for her. And then we had this post-it uh, exercise where we put really literally on the wall everything which has been sourced from the group. And we have them walk through this on the perception, different perception of how do you perceive women, how women are perceived in your company, and what did specifically happen to you as a woman in this company, which is very different from. And then the men, they were walking around and they were seeing this person. Gosh, I had no idea. I knew it was happening elsewhere. I know, I know about it. But in our company, this is it. And they were ashamed. So it's not the objective. We don't want to shame people. But shame can be a good start to move towards uh, action. So there was shame or there was anger and there was, I don't want this for my daughter. And I don't want to work for a company where this happens. A lot of our work is about helping people recognize where they've gone unconscious, where, they're, where there's blind spots. For example, on this project we worked on earlier, the first question we asked was, what, what are the advantages of not addressing gender issues? And people were, it really caught them off guard. They were not ready for that, right? <laughs> and we did this process where it's kind of a free association thing. Just say the first thing that comes to mind is keep it moving. Don't worry, don't overthink this. Just like word out whatever it is. And you can just say pass if you don't have something. And, and we're writing down the flip chart and we amassed this huge number of really good reasons to not address it. Like, I don't have to get in trouble. It keeps the status quo. There's no arguments. You know, I might be going home with stuffed feelings, but I'm not in, I'm not in conflict with people. And it kind of normalized it. It let people go, there really are good reasons. Then the second question was, why do we need to talk about it now? And the first answer was, because it's 2017. Right. right, right. So it's time to wake up. And... We've been asleep for a long time, and now we're recognizing that by cutting off ourselves from half of the population, or as there's a, an African saying that women hold up half the sky, we're, we're cutting ourselves off from an enormous source of intelligence and, and corrective healing behavior. Women have traditionally been the healers, so you don't need to look very far to see the damage that's being inflicted at every level, from societal to ecosystem to community and, and in the home life. So if we want to heal this, we have to invite women into the conversation. And that means that men have to become open to recognizing, wow, we've been unconsciously participating in something. I'm very hesitant around the, the, the language of blame because I know how unconscious I've been in my own life in my, as I trace my personal development. And there's lots of times in my life you could point a finger at me and say, mm. you're really doing something horrible. And I was, but I couldn't recognize it. And now that I've seen that, I recognize that the only way to get me to open to it is to invite me rather than 
accuse me. Right. So we want to invite people into a deeper conversation. I think it's not so much about fixing than about uh, already becoming more aware. And we, this movement is bringing us the opportunity of bringing this forward, of having women's voices heard. This is, this is, I should be rejoicing because they are heard when they have um, a podium yeah, where they can stand and they can be heard and people are not pointing at them and say, no, no, no. You remember this, this story with Cosby where all these women were uh, testifying and they had to wait until, how many do you want, like a million uh, in order right. for him to, uh, to have some consequences about it? So there is this awareness which is where you were talking about the structure there is something about organization which clearly needs to change, not only about harassment, but about the lack of innovation, about the lack of collaboration. We are all the big talks. I am uh, helping people prepare in all of the big companies that we are working with. They all have this word in their mouth, which is how can we get people to collaborate together? How can we break silos? How can we make organizations leaner? How can we adapt the startup model? I mean, we're working for uh, big banks, you know, tr the most traditional uh, sectors, and they are all working on uh, the, the big hype is how do we work as a startup? And people are very excited about it, and they say, yes, we want to. But the main problem is, how do we communicate about it? If we keep on having the same behavior and the same, uh, the same pattern of, uh, of functioning. So that's where our two works are really intertwined because uh, the whole work uh, I discovered for Ken about collaboration, I was not aware how uh, close we were uh, working together. Because uh, what I discovered is that when, when people talk about collaboration at work, they talk about project management, they talk about methodology, about lean design thinking. I don't know how many, you know, all these uh, really buzzwords. It's great as model, as a techniques, but then when you get people in the same room and when you get people to talk together, when there is conflict, when there is tension, when there is stress, when there is power struggle, when there are people who are afraid, well, if I give this information to these people, maybe I'm going to lose my job. Yeah, they won't need me anymore. So we're dealing about the fears, the emotions of people. And that's what I discovered. How do we move people from fear to awareness. This is exactly what I've been doing with women myself. How do I move? How do I help women move from their feeling of inadequacy, of not being enough, of being an imposter, and moving them from, wow, no, I am at my place. This is really, I am a competent, confident, skillful woman, and I can express my voice. So to finish on the question of how do you fix uh, this issue in, in companies, uh, we tackle it as uh, something which is complex and which is inside of the DNA of the inside of the wall. It's like abestos. Abestos. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's invisible. And so you make it visible first and then 
you make the business case and then you make sure that you accompany, you help people individually and collectively work together on this issue. And do you see this as a bottom up, a top, a top down, a little bit of both? How all of the above? Yeah, yes, yeah, that's yes. This is this is this is this. Right. <laughs> I don't know. You. you know what Marion is describing is is what we would call a competency based approach. So we're both trained as coaches, and in coaching, you don't give advice. That's that's codependency, right? Because then you need to come to me for advice all the time. So if I can look at what are the missing competencies, which if they were in place, you would have a really different behavior from the system. Because we're dealing with systems, and you can, you can coach systems. You can actually change systems by intervening in places where unconscious behavior is changed into conscious choice. And so we help people to identify, you know, if this was working, what would it look like? I find the question of how do we do this puts people into that problem-solving mindset, right? right? And then... People go, we need to think outside the box. Well, it, as soon as you've named box, you can't get outside of it. <laughs> so, so people say, what don't we know? Well, that's kind of a worthless question. We don't know a lot of stuff, but we don't know what to, how to define that. But if instead we shift from how do we solve X to what would it look like if the corporate culture here was one that was respectful and humane and produced the kind of results you want, that it was, it was profitable, it was humane, it was respectful of women and men both, it was really making a difference in the world and bringing, share, bringing value not just to our shareholders but to all of our stakeholders, then you get a really different type of conversation going and a different story. You mentioned stories earlier on, we're hearing these stories and I think we're in a time in the world where the old stories that held us together are breaking down because we're no longer so divided. You know, the internet has connected people in a way that, that is remarkable. You know, what did Martin Luther King say? That, that technology has made of the world a, a neighborhood. Now we must make it a brotherhood of hope to survive, right? So those old stories that held nations together are bumping against each other in ways that are very disruptive. And so the new story hasn't emerged yet. Right. And I, I quote a lot of poetry, you know, and Yeats says that, that things fall apart, the center will not hold. So if the center doesn't hold, where do you go to, to find what's going to emerge? You go to the periphery, you go to the margins. You look at where are the people who have been abandoned. And in America, that's Detroit, right? Detroit's been completely abandoned. This is once our proudest city, you know, the, the engine, literally the engine of American progress was Detroit, and it's been decimated. And there are people there doing incredible things with no government assistance, a lot of community stuff, you know, and they're creating models of how to build resilient communities where, where people with very little resources come together and have high quality of life. Burning Man is another uh, thing. There's a, something called Burners Without Borders. And they take what they know about how to create temporary community, and they go into places after tsunamis and earthquakes, and they set up you know, uh, structures for people to take care of themselves and have food and water and health care and temporary shelter and to talk about how can we rebuild our community. So these are kind of marginal things that most people think, oh, that's just some woo-woo thing, but they have very real applicable uh, lessons for all of us in resilience and creating a different type of story, a different type of culture that can serve what we want it to serve. Because we're in the age now where we get to design the future of humanity. If we don't, we'll take ourselves out of the picture. We're now at this choice point of we, can have a collective conversation that says we can be here 
and thrive for millions of years if we decide everybody is worth it. If it's only going to be the special interests, I guarantee it's not going to work. And that's that tension of it's so easy to blame people. Oh, it's the billionaire's fault. Oh, it's the tax haven's fault. No, it's we haven't had a collective conversation. People are left out. So the idea isn't to point fingers because great wealth is just as dehumanizing as great poverty. It's to say, if all of us were working together, if all of us had a stake and a chance to speak, what would happen? We don't really know, but I'd sure love to try that out. And I'd love to be there to help facilitate that conversation. So how do we do that? Because I love that idea of focusing on these great things that are happening at the margins and in small communities and on the small scale, mm -hmm. and say. Is that the only place that we can really make change, affect change? Oh, I think you can affect change at any level. How do we take those small things and make them big? How do we no. give them a voice? There are also the idea of training people. We're doing this more and more, what we call agents of change mm. inside cooperation. There is even a, a movement which is called Cooperate Rebels. And uh, how do you still in from inside so you can work on the ages, you work, can work in uh, things that are emerging, and we see that in the sharing economy and all these things that are mushrooming <laughs> really literally everywhere and in the younger generation. I've been working with oh, something fantastic, which is called 66 Miles. We've heard of them. Oh, yeah, by five by five. By mm -hmm. five by yeah. five. And they had one day, this is a beautiful project, where five by five and also a pioneer associated themselves. They brought big companies like HSBC, like ACOG, like uh, SNCF, and they asked, okay, in who could you send to this program to be trained for a short period of my of time, once a month, to meet and to work on their ideas, on their babies, on their project inside of a company that they want to develop, and uh, to work as a startup and to be uh, advised by the best uh, investors and how to pitch and uh, how to develop this. And I was part of this program, and I developed a one day, which I call the heroine's journey for them. In the 66 miles, you know the story of 66 miles. So in this journey, how do you position yourself in your whole life? Because this is something you're going to do for a couple of months, but what does it mean for you in your whole project, professional and personal project? So I believe very much that, uh, to come back to your question of where do we start, in which directions, all the opportunities have to be taken. If I can support women who are inside big groups I will do that. It spreads, it's organic, then it's just, uh, it's an effect also, a domino effect. Then people say, oh, this is curious, what are you doing there? I also have my idea, could I develop it? And could I bring other people with me? And then, oh, but this guy who is working in a complete other department, actually he has skills that I can bring. So that's the approach we have today together. And what I would say in answer to your question is, one, recognize that the margins are right next to you. You don't have to go very far to find the margins. Chances are, in your organization, there are people who feel marginalized. So we started this work together recognizing if we're going to be effective in addressing gender, we need to create allies. We need men to be allies for women. We need women to be allies for men. If women are trying to change the system by blaming men, it's not going to work. And so I did some work on racism after Ferguson. 
I have a, an African-American colleague who said, we've got to do something. And there'd been a national call for a conversation on race. And we, they said, you know, Ken, you're collaborative conversations. Let's have a conversation about race. I said, you know what? We're not ready to have a conversation about race. We have to do listening to racism. So we developed a workshop just to get people grounded enough in their bodies to hear the traumatic stories, right? And we, a book we looked at was Waking Up White, I think is the best name of it, right? And it's about white people becoming allies for, for communities of color, because we do have enormous privilege and power, and most of us are unaware of it, right? And as we wake up, it becomes really painful. Well, oh, this is ugly. This is really ugly, and I don't want to look at it, and I don't want to be called a racist. I don't want to live myself racist, but when I really pull back, look at the system, I have to say, well, you know, if racism leverages individual prejudice into systemic oppression and I'm benefiting from that, then I'm actually acting as a racist. And when I start to wake up and say, how do I change that? It gets really messy, you know, and it, there's a lot of challenging emotions involved with that. And that's why we need to listen first so we can kind of calm that down and get to a reasonable place where we can start to engage in a different type of conversation. And so we're building allies across the spectrum of whether it's Nonprofit community organizers with corporate centers or getting gender parity in the workplace within a single organization. Those are allies bridging the margins into the center and saying, you know, let's have a different type of conversation where we can actually unpack what is painful here, what's hurting, and what needs healing, and what can we do about it in terms of what's the advantages of not dealing with it. So people go, wow, there are advantages. And then they balance that with, and there's real needs. Now we have that as our container, we can start to work very differently together. That is one of the most powerful questions that I've discovered with you, and lately it's, what are the benefits of not talking about gender? Of what are the benefits of not collaborating? And people are, what do you mean? What are you saying? There are no benefits. Well, wait. <laughs> See, they are, and we let this emerge, and we are all included into this. I'm also part of a gender bias. Recently, oh, actually, that was Chloe Bonnet. She interviewed me for a review of coaching, European review of coaching. And uh, she asked me also, it's very different way to coach women and men. Or if you're a woman coach, are you different if you're a male coach? And then I started to say, hey, you know, Chloe, I really don't like these questions because for me, it's uh, really going into essentialism. I did a, a master in uh, sociology and anthropology and gender studies. So the question of putting labels and very uh, differentiating people by gender is very dangerous and very tricky. Still, I observed in myself that when are you different with men and with women? And I am. I'm much better with women. With, with men, I modelize what my colleagues do. I do like them. I do a very good job, but I kind of, um, I take myself more seriously. I'm more stiff. I'm giving myself less permission. Mm. I'm not playing like I'm, I would play. I'm not bringing all this creative stuff that I have, unless I'm, it's really after I've broken the ice and then I can find a, a ground and I can feel safe and people, but at the beginning, I would have this sort of a, okay, I'm expected to behave in a certain way. So I internalized also what is expected of me as a coach. And then I must be more serious than my usual personality. Otherwise, they will think that, who is this clown? <laughs> I think is that that's... why you're so serious with me all the time? <laughs> <laughs> that's really 
important the idea of getting honest with ourselves like you said listening and being aware of mm -hmm. what privileges do we have and how do we act you know am i different when i'm whatever i think that's absolutely important before we can make any kind of real change yeah. listening in coaching we say you can't change what you can't observe so if we want to help you to instill a different behavior in yourself first we have to make you aware of how you are behaving and that's often a very painful process because you go, no, I don't do that. Come on. I'm, that doesn't align with my image of a nice guy, right? Mm -hmm. And like, you start finding out you're not as nice as you think. It's painful. And that's why you have a coach that supports you. Say, this is, everybody does this. Everybody appears to themselves as great until you look and you go, ooh. And that's why we have to recognize we're all capable of this. Or perhaps the opposite. is Maybe especially for women, we appear or we think that we are, you know, mm, small oh, and we don't have the power. So right. Yes. Right. Very much true. So both ways yeah. are important. There's a big, yeah. big part of the, of the work we do on, uh, at a woman's stage, which is to work on the difference between the gap between self-perception and the other's perception. By the feedback, by gentle feedback, by, by being supportive, by being positive, and by building from the strength, because this is really what I believe in, just uh, strengthening the core before adding, okay, you should be more like that, or you should, what you already are, you give them as a mirror, you are already very, very good. And that's the ability I think I have the best, is to see how good women already are, how talented and how powerful they already are. And then once you have done this work, the rest is almost, it's easy. But it's to consolidate, you know, and to help them shape inside of them. And it's like a sculptor. Mm -hmm. They're sculpting this and then they're exercising their muscle of confidence and of, and of self-compassion because most of the time they can be very self-critical. There has to be places where it's working better. Nothing's perfect, but... You're speaking about, yeah, the mythic uh, northern countries that have been always been... Uh, I've been a big fan of Iceland. I think I was something like uh, 10 or 20, there was the first female president ever elected in a country, and it was Iceland. And I was like, wow, this is possible. And I just can remember this as a little girl when I heard this, the news. And then there, is, there are very practical reasons, like you say, it's low quota. There is a direct link between quota and uh, between uh, the place of women in politics, especially, and uh, in, uh, on boards. But there is more, there is the law, and there is the culture, and there is the egalitarian culture, which is not only between men and women, but there is less distance in power. It's also smaller countries, organizations are different. I'm not sure I would develop all the reasons, but there are a mix of uh, sociological reasons, historical reasons, political reasons, cultural, even language reasons. I think it's Sweden, it's the only language where hen, it's the article, which is both for men and for women. So for boys and for girls. And so there is a neutral thing about it. And there has been a lot of work that have been done and uh, with uh, our French, ex-French uh, Minister of uh, Égalité Professionnelle, I think, uh, Najat Farouk-Belkassem, which has been criticized so much, but she's done so such a good work. And uh, at some times uh, we were really working very closely together with uh, the organization I was part of, Business Professional Women, working on the legal part of it. This is 
why I joined this movement, because it seemed to be where decisions were going to be happening. And uh, what she did was to implement, they went and they, they did a learning study, the learning um, trip to these northern countries. And, okay, what can we adapt to French politics, for instance? And they had sessions And they had sessions of gender awareness, of working on stereotypes, working on bias, and then trying to introduce this notion of quotas and how can we cope with that, even if I'm not personally in favor of quotas as a principle. This is horrible to be to defend this, because then you are, oh, she's this, uh, why is she there? Oh, we need a more woman, there's a quota. But the proof is that is a necessary step. So there are countries where it's working better. There are companies which are modelizing this very well. I advise you to go on the site website, which is called 21st. It's by Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. She's one of the people, she's my mentor. I've been really very much inspired by her. She goes and she makes the business case in companies of why we need to have gender Bilingualism. She even talks about gender bilingualism and not only balance and not the case for diversity, but for really gender bilingualism. I was just checking before this interview because I wanted to see latest numbers and results. What is um, the latest? I think that was uh, yesterday in the Financial Times. They did it results for England. You know, they have been shifting their laws and trying to implement quotas. And that been, it's Lord Davis who is at the initiative of this. It seems like it has hardly changed. What we notice is that there are some very good, there are some people, some companies who are getting it, who are really good and who are like the example, Shani. But the majority of them still, they are not moving at all. Because they are paying, it's like you pay the tax to be, you know, uh, to pollute less or in order to keep on doing business as usual, you pay more. And this is exactly the case for gender in politics. The parties, they, okay, we don't have any more. Oh, we'll pay, but fine, then we're fine. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a breaking point, which we need to keep on going so that we have a critical mass. That is a tipping point, Mm -hmm. a critical mass. And the critical mass is 30%, free women. It's uh, free women in any groups. It starts to change the culture in the 30% of everything. It starts to shift the thing. So we're getting there. My work involves a lot of work around what we call collective intelligence, which is basically how do people come together and make better decisions as a result of being together than they'd make when they're alone. And MIT has a center for the study of collective intelligence that's been studying this for some time now. And they've determined there's three factors that, if they're in place, support the emergence of collective intelligence. They don't guarantee it, but these will allow a higher possibility to have collective intelligence. The first is social perceptiveness. Are you aware when you speak of your emotional impact on other people? The second is their turn-taking occurring in the conversations. Not that everybody gets the same amount of time, but that everybody gets the chance to speak and be heard. And the third is the addition of women to the group, all the way up to groups of all women. So it's not surprising when they looked at this that women tend to be much better at those first two because women are, you know, they're primarily, and I'm generalizing here, there's always exceptions to the rule, but women are the caretakers, they're the the child rearers. So they're naturally 
much better at social perceptiveness. And in my personal experience, I've noticed that when I'm in groups with a lot of women, they tend to be much more respectful listeners. They don't interrupt as much as men do. And they allow people to go ahead and complete and finish. And, and so I think women are really good at that. And that's why when you add them to a group, you get a higher percentage of a higher likelihood that you'll have better decisions made as a result of being together. So I think there's great benefit in looking at where are things working and then taking that question and saying, how can we apply those lessons here? I don't like the phrase best practice because best practice goes back to problems. In simple situations, you can have best practices. What's the best practice for accounting? You get standards, right? What's the best practice for complex situations? There are no best practices. There are good practices. There are things that work here but have to be adapted and changed to work over here. And I think by looking at where are we seeing that women are making gains and creating the kinds of conditions that are, are bringing forth more intelligent collective behavior that makes sense from a business standpoint, makes sense from a social standpoint, makes sense from an ecological standpoint, those are really worth studying and then saying, how can we make that happen? And you'll notice where we keep shifting between this individual and collective. There's a lot of inner work that has to happen, so we're aware of our own stage of development. There's a lot of outer work that has to happen, so we're aware of the corporate stages of development. How are we bringing our people along and making sure that we're getting the best from them as well as giving the best to them? I love everything that you said and about collective intelligence, about MIT, and I just wanted to express it at some point in a different way because I don't personally believe that uh, women are naturally more empathetic and caring, although I'm a mother and I think I'm very empathetic. I think this is part of a gender construction. This is not natural. This is something that we are expected to be. And when women are like that, it's yeah. But there are some women who are not. And then they, it's difficult for them. And there are men who are very much like that. So it's just the word natural. We get acculturated. And so yeah. if you yeah. grow up as a boy, you wear these clothes, you wear these toys, mm. you, you do these things. Deborah Tannen has done some remarkable mm. work in studying. She followed, you know, kids from little kids all the way through high school. And women will always talk like this, looking at each other. And boys will look straight ahead. And so she said, okay, I noticed that when there's no furniture. She put furniture in the room, and the boys would actually turn the chairs so they could have them the way they wanted. The women would always turn them right. And no matter what they did, that was the model. And she said, it didn't matter. The boys would have these profound conversations, but they're both looking out in different directions. And the women would have the role, but they're looking at each other. Mm. So we have, it's very, very complicated. It's complex. There's lots of layers, and there's no, we can't make broad generalizations and expect to have them hold up in every case, including the, the cultural thing, right? There's exceptions to all of that. But we can distill some general principles and the principles of listening and taking turns and especially listening to women will give us much better conversations, much better decisions and collective intelligence that we're going to get if we continue to just have it be old white guys. So we like to ask everybody, how do you define success? Personally, professionally, on a broader scale, Hmm. However it oh, is. what a question. You okay. can blame one of your colleagues for this question. They, they, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 that's true. they helped crystallize that idea. So <laughs> I'm not going to name names. We're going to blame for his own. I think I have an idea, okay? <laughs> that's a great question. That's a great question because as a coach, this is what I do for a living. People come to have more successful presentation. People come to me to have more successful professional lives. And sometimes it's very mixed also with the personal. And uh, so I'm all about uh, 
working about around success. And what I've seen is that success has millions of different interpretation for all of the people that I'm uh, working with. So the first thing is, you ask me for my own interpretation, is to, when I work with people, a successful coaching would be when people stand taller and they become bigger than themselves at the end. They are, at the same time, more familiar with themselves. They know themselves better. They are more aligned with what they want, who they are, what are their values, what they care for. And then they are sort of a growing a bigger persona than their ego, and then they're able to share it with the world, and they're able to share their aliveness and their talents with the world. And personally, that's the more I get older, the older I get, that's what I'm striving to every day, just to be braver in what I really want, to be more honest and to be aligned with my values and to be expressing also all this weirdness that I tried to suppress because I thought it was better to be successful like other people think that success is. But for me, successful is to be at peace with my family, with my friends, with my community, and to do the work that I love doing. This is my definition of success. Well, that's a tough act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people talk about making a difference. And for me, that's not sufficient. I studied Gregory Bateson for a while, and Bateson used to talk about the difference that makes a difference. How do you make a difference that actually shifts the system, that shifts things? So you can make a difference by, you know, stopping in the middle of the street and causing a traffic jam, but that's not a very helpful difference. And you can make a difference by helping people in ways that are useful at a small level, but don't really shift the system. So for me, it's about having people have more powerful conversations about things that matter, that are often difficult to have, but are possible. So, you know, I mentioned that I've spent a lot of time studying what do we do in conversation that actually creates results. And one of those things is to create more understanding. If I can go into an organization and create a greater sense of understanding of what's important and why people are there and what they care about and give them the tools to move forward on that and say, you know, I go to work now and I get to do something that's worthwhile. I feel good about what I'm doing then I feel that I'm succeeding. As succinct as I can put it, as you know. Well, thank you both for joining us. This was really excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting thank us. Thank you. Yeah, it yeah. was a lot of fun, yes. That wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening. Support us on Patreon. And join us next time on Radical Departures.